This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will often select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 155th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are looking at Sam Hill Private Eye, number 7. From Close Up Incorporated, part of MLJ slash Archie Comics. Cover dated 1952, which does make this the oldest issue we've ever covered on the podcast up to this point under any definition of oldest that we have discussed uh, previously. Uh, but first, we have a little feedback. Mike Laughlin sent in some feedback that covered a couple of our shows uh, here on the network, and this bit fits this show perfectly. Hi, Professor Allen. Before the coronavirus manifested in the United States, my local comic shop had a dollar bin sale. At first, they reduced the price to 50 cents if you bought 20 or more. I bought a bunch. And a few weeks later, they reduced the price to... Drum roll, please. 25 cents each for 20 or more comics. Oh, how I scoured those long boxes. I ended up buying about 200 comics total, including several complete miniseries and crossovers. I managed to pick up almost every issue of the Legion of Superheroes from the 80s and early 90s that I hadn't read, including the Legionnaires 3 miniseries, the Cosmic Boy miniseries, and over 20 issues from five years later. Several Milestone and Valiant books, a bunch of John Sables, Sandman Mystery Theaters, almost every issue of Irredeemable, several Ultraverse comics, a ton of random Marvel, DC, and indie books. I'm about halfway through my purchases and happy to have so many cheap comics to help me through these long days. You know, Mike, if you're going to be locked at home, the best thing that can happen is to be locked at home with a couple hundred cheap comics. Yes. Uh, he continues on the nature of the podcast, and he points out if the venerable British Comics Mag 2000 AD can keep its name, despite being 20 plus years out of date, you can keep calling your show The Quarter Bin, even if the namesake is more or less a thing of the past. Review whatever comics you want. I'll keep listening. First, stories of acquiring cheap comics. And now this, Mike? You're quickly becoming one of my favorite listeners. <laughs> On episode 153, the Thor Annual, Mike said that he read it as part of the Korvac Saga trade paperback. But given how unfamiliar your recap sounded, this issue must have left no impression whatsoever. The true mark of an average annual. <laughs> but let's get to the real topic brought up on the episode. How do I file my annuals? Professor, I'm glad you asked. 
I agree that annuals are part of the regular series and not separate titles. But still, how should they be filed? Obviously, annuals that are part of a regular series storylines, for example, Avengers Annual 2001 is a chapter of the Kang Dynasty between issues 43 and 44. It can be filed along with the regular series. Do you keep standalone annuals, such as this Thor Annual, at the end of the regular series, or in publication order, I lean towards the latter. I find an annual from the 70s reads best amidst other 70s comics. Comic book stores tend to put them in the bins after the main series. That approach is valid, even if I like my system better. Personally, uh, this is me, Professor Allen, speaking. I always go with putting them after but I'm not adamant that that is the right way to do it, quote-unquote. I am open-minded on that, as opposed to, say, loading the dishwasher, where there's clearly only one way to do that, and I do it correctly. Uh, But Mike continues, what about crossover annuals? Let's say I want to read all of Atlantis Attacks, or all of Evolutionary War. Do I go through every separate series looking for the one issue that leads to the crossover, or do I keep them all together? The answer is moot, because I would rather keep my brain from dribbling out my ears than read a crossover told through the annuals. They pretty much all sucked. You see, Mike, this is what I was about to say. I was going to say that the right way to organize Atlantis attacks is in your recycling bin. Or, you know, if, if you can't bring yourself to do that, It's whatever process makes it so frustrating to gather the comics that you don't bother trying, so you end up avoiding reading it altogether. We call that the dodging bullets approach to comic book organizing. Then Mike says, okay, as an intellectual exercise, I might group my crossover annuals with the parent title that was either the main series that the crossover featured Days of Future Present ran through three X-Titles annuals and one FF annuals, so I'd put it with the X-Men, despite the X-Men annual being part four, or the series that hosted chapter one of the story. Return of the Defender started with Incredible Hulk annual 18, so I'd stick the Namor, Silver Surfer, and Doc Strange annuals with my Hulk comments. I'm so glad you wanted your listeners to continue to write in how to sort comics. No, 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 you don't have to thank me. (laughs) And then Michael finally brought himself back in and wrote about another actual episode of the podcast. Archie 101. I've never cared about Archie comics and have no affinity for the teen hijinks genre. I've bought myself three Archie comics in my life. Archie Meets the Punisher, Archie vs. Predator, and Afterlife with Archie, all of which were fun bits of incongruity. For years, I just ignored Archie. Despite my personal apathy toward the comics, Archie became very important to me at one point in my life. Why? Because for a time, my daughter loved those comics. She doesn't care about the Riverdale TV show or the acclaimed modern Archie comics, no. She liked the old-school, Dan DiCarlo-style Archie stories found in the Digest. She discovered the series when she was seven or eight, 
and fell in love with the cast and the storytelling present in the series. Veronica was her favorite, and just between us, she is totally a Veronica. We spent many a night reading Archie comics before bedtime. At a convention, I got her a poster signed by Fernando Ruiz that she hung in her bedroom for years. Well, she's 13 now and moved on, but for a little while, my hobby and my daughter's interests found common ground. For that, I'll always be grateful for Archie Comics. Thank you for continuing the podcast, Mike Laughlin. Mike, thank you for writing in. Terrific stories. Thank you. And Richard Jordan wrote in about an older episode, episode 126, where we covered Time Walker from Valiant. I paid at least $3 for this issue. It makes me furious when I hear podcasts talk about really cheap bins because no one around me has them. Uh, sorry about that, Richard. The cheapest I've found is dollar bins at a flea market. I'm sure it just depends on where you live. But anyways, enjoyed your podcast. I've been collecting Valiant comics for a little while, and that's pretty much all I do except for a little Deja Thoris on the side. Hey. If I'm going to cheat on Valiant, at least I'm going to do it with a stunner like her. I think the Time Walker episode is the only Valiant I saw for your podcast. Please let me know if I'm mistaken. Stay Valiant, Rich. You stay Valiant as well, friend. And it wasn't on this show, but I have talked recently about some Valiant books on the Comics Reading Journal, especially the excellent Wrath of the Eternal Warrior series. And, uh, on Deja Thoris? Yes. Definitely. On episode 154, last episode, we covered The Mighty Thor number 20, and the cover image of Big Ol' Volstagg garnered some comments. Sir, Sir Martin of Grey, first said that he thought Volstagg looked a little Thor. And then if that joke wasn't enough, he tried, Boy, Jane Foster's lockdown hair. Okay, I laughed out loud at that one. Like, actually out loud. Jason from Hawaii had some nice things to say about the episode. Mahalo, Jason. Ed Moore thanked me for giving the Mighty Thorcast a few shoutouts. Well, I thank him for listening to this episode and hearing those shoutouts. And Dr. Ange had this to say about Volstead. I know Marvel Thor. I worked with Marvel Thor. Marvel Thor was a friend of mine. And you, red-haired dude on the cover, you are no Marvel Thor. But I think that Oprah has been more of the inspiration for Marvel uh, recently. You get to be a Thor. You get to be a Thor. You all get to be Thors. And on the insides, the story itself, Billy D. From Into the Weird showed his chronological comic book bias. Hey, Prof. At first I was excited to hear you were talking about another Thor story. But then I heard it was from 2017. God bless you for reading new or newer comics. You're either a saint or a masochist. Either way, thanks for keeping me company on my morning commute. Take care. Look. Someone has to read these modern books 
when they become available for coverage on this podcast. I'm not saying, Billy, that I'm a hero. I mean, if you want to call me one, I mean, I wouldn't deny it. But I'm not saying it. And back to Sir Sir Martin of Grey. He had some thoughts on the, the guts of the comic, the story itself. I read this comic so I could properly appreciate your review. And I have to ask, did Jason Aaron always write Thor as a selfish moron? All those years he kept his real self from Jane, and now he berates her? Well, Mart, to some extent, yes. Thor has been portrayed as a bit... Let's go with self-centered or self-important. But here, wallowing in his unworthiness? Yes. I think he's hitting a new low. And then Mart wants to know why are they calling him Odinson? Suddenly Thor has a surname? Possession of the hammer gives a person Thor's name as well as his power? And how is being killed by cancer or live with superpowers a dilemma for anyone? Well, I'm assuming some of those, Martin, are rhetorical questions, and I'll just, uh, just let those hang there. But I think that the Odinson, that name, was a way of trying to separate that character from the heroic identity. Jane wasn't going to be the girl Thor, or Jane Thor, or Thoress. She was just going to be Thor. And the side effect of that choice, which I think I support, was that the big guy we had known for so long, who had that name, well, he had to be called something else now. So I think that was at least the logic trail that led to him being called Odinson. And then Martin wraps up with, This was terribly sad, what with the kids dying and Volstagg having to give up his brunch. (laughs) Yes, yes, both of those. Equally sad. Thank you, Sir Martin. Always love your feedback. Consistently proving your worthiness as a knight of the Relatively Geeky Roundtable. Clinton Robison from Fan Film Fridays wrote in about the secret key character in that Thor issue, Thori! And my comments about DC versus Marvel regarding their talking animal characters. I'll agree for the most part on DC's pet and animal characters being better. However, you neglected Throg, Frog Thor, and the dragon Lockheed. Those are my only Marvel offerings, though. I agree with you on the main parts there, Clinton. One, that I forgot a few from Marvel. And two, agreeing with me for the most part. I agree with you on that. Social media love for that episode came from Bill from the Bat Pod, Old School Ross, MC Charles J. 2020, Chris Lydon, Mike Lane from Comics in the Golden Age, Derek from the Fan Holes, Gene Hendricks from the Hammer Strikes, Victor Natoli, Randy Watts, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Christopher Willette, Anthony Percanti, Laurel Mountainflower from the Hunters Podcast, Karen from Between the Pages, Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace, the Dr. Kittens, Paul from the Collected Edition, Pat from the Long Box Crusade, and our listeners of the year, the Sutherlands. 
let me talk briefly about our comic book issue for today. And then we'll take a break and we'll come back and me and a guest will be discussing the book. And that book will be Sam Hill PI number seven, which had a cover price of 10 cents, meaning you would think that I acquired this book for a 150% markup. But that's not quite the case. Because, as I've said for the last batch of episodes, here's the thing. About 10 episodes ago, I talked about possibly changing the quarter bin criteria for coverage on the show, and we came up with a bunch of potential options. And you probably remember that was just smooth sailing. It was a complete lack of controversy about me doing that. Eh, Possibly I'm remembering that wrong. But anyway... Our plan for this series of episodes is that uh, we'll do some rule-breaking, and we'll do a different bit of rule-breaking in each episode. And this rule-break is one of the more reasonable ones, to my mind, in terms of the original concept of this show, which is to talk about books that are available for cheap. And in this episode, we're looking at a book available for free, for anyone with an internet connection. Nothing else required. It's free, it's legal, and it's legitimate. We're covering a public domain comic, and I'm reading mine from one of the main public domain sites, digitalcomicmuseum.com. And I guess that makes this a 100% markdown from that original outrageous 10 cent cover price. As you probably well know, an item falls into the public domain when it falls out of copyright. Items like this comic book become public domain based on a combination of time passing, the holder of the copyright going out of business or otherwise not renewing the copyright when that option is is possible, and it does vary based on the copyright law of various nations. Most of the books on the Digital Comics Museum are from before 1955 or so, and most of them are from publishers that no longer exist as legal entities. I went through a range of the many publishers on that site, and I ignored books from the 30s and 40s because those books can be 50 or 60 pages long, and I wanted to cover for this episode a more traditionally sized comic book, something in the 30 to 40 page range. But have no fear, this book still does have four separate stories in it. So I found uh, uh, 10 possible titles that met that criteria and then let the randomizer do its work and it landed on Sam Hill PI and then I went ahead and picked the last issue published, which is issue 7. And then I went ahead and picked a guest who I knew was a fan of public domain comics. So let's take a break here, play a promo, and when we get back, the two of us will be looking at Sam Hill, Private Eye, number seven. Hello, Paul. Hello. I am Dr. Herfenstaffner. Come in, come in, please. Take a seat. Take a seat. What can I do for you today? Uh, just, I'm just, 
I'm, I can't sleep. I, I, I can't focus on anything. The only thing I can think about is, like, DC events. DC events? As in the comic books? DC events? Yes, yes. The comic book events. Ooh, interesting. Uh, are we, we talking things like Crisis on Infinite Earths? Yeah, yeah, totally. That one, yeah. Uh, Infinite Crisis? Yeah, yeah, that one too. Oh, very, very. Invasion, maybe? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, the, uh, the Genesis? Uh, not so much. No? Oh. Okay, well, I think it's really good if you talk about the things that are troubling you in your life. So, maybe you should do a podcast about this obsession. What, what, what do you call this obsession? What do you think it is? I think you're a unique case. I've not seen anything like this before in my office. I'm going to suggest that you have what we call DCOCD. What? DCOCD? You are obsessive and compulsive about your DC events. I think you should talk it out, get it out of your system via a podcast. I will help you, my friend. We shall do a podcast together about your DCOCD. Oh, okay. When I won't even start? charge you for it. <laughs> awesome. I don't think I can claim you on benefits. <clears throat> yeah, it's good. <laughs> when shall we start? Um, I'll get back to you on that. I'll check my, I'll check my timetable. <laughs> and we're back. And by we... I don't mean me and my Doctor Doom sketchbook. I mean me and great friend of the network. Royalty. It's Sir Luke of the Upstate. Hey, uh, thank you for that uh, wonderful welcome, Professor. And uh, always glad to be on any of the shows on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. But always, always the quarter bin. I mean, uh, we're, we're both thrifty and comic book fans. I mean, it's a perfect match. It's a win-win. Yeah. Now, when I decided I was going to cover a public domain book for this rule-breaking miniseries, you were the obvious choice for this one. I think it was my impression that you were a fan or reader, at least, of public domain books. Have I made a terrible mistake, or was that correct? No, in, in this case, you have not made a terrible oh, mistake, okay. at, least not, at, at least not yet. I mean, we'll see how things go on the recording. Let me um, text Panarese. <laughs> not going to need him after all. Okay, thanks. Well, you know, I and I'm one of the folks I think that introduced Tom onto this little corner of of comicdom yeah. on the internet. So, yeah. I I do not recall when it was that I was first put on to public domain comics. But uh, folks who've heard me uh, not only in this network but you and I talk on on my show or or elsewhere know that uh, besides just superheroes, I'm a big fan of of genre comics, of right. war comics, horror comics you know, other types of, of genre books that just aren't very popular nowadays. And I want to say it was probably for horror comics that I found mm. public domain right. comics because there's just a ton of these publishers out there that are no longer around and their, their copyrights have all expired. And back before what we would, back in what we would call the golden age right. in the 40s and 50s and even into the early 60s, all of the comics publishers had genre books. And so that's, and a lot of them now are in the public domain. So that's kind of how I got into it. Now I, I keep, I keep referring to like genre books, but no matter what type of comics you want to read, there's a treasure trove oh, yeah. 
of classic books, no matter what the genre. You want to read Westerns? You got Westerns. You want to read teen, like Archie-style books? You got teen books. You want to read superheroes? There's a whole lot of superheroes. Uh, anyone familiar with the, uh, the Dynamite Entertainment uh, series Project Superpowers? That's right. That um, Alex Ross was involved in. All of those public domain heroes are all uh, available out there. That's not to mention, of course, uh, the Charlton heroes that did not have proper copyright attribute, attributed to them. So if you want to read some Ditko question or Blue Beetle or some Captain Adam or Judo Master or Sarge Steel, who uh, I, I'm a pretty big fan of, they're out there. But the other great thing is because of the age of some of these, you get the really just the types of books you just don't expect. Now, this one I got from the Digital Comics Museum. I know there are a couple other sites. Um, do you generally read from there, or, or do you have a particular home base for this type of book? For public domain books, the site that I first got into them on and that I still um, owe my primary loyalty to in this, uh, <laughs> in this particular circle is called Comic Book Plus. Oh, okay. And it, it's just comicbookplus.com. They've been around since 2006. What I like about Comic Book Plus is that if you, you just log on to the site as just Joe Blogs off the street on the internet, they have a really well-designed in-browser reader that'll just page oh, no, you through okay. the comic. Nice. But if you go and create a free account, they also will let you download in CBR format. So if you want to read in like Perfect Viewer or many of the many CBR readers out there, you can do that. Uh, they also have a, um, a pretty well-developed um, archive of comic strips and, um, yeah, and, other and fanzines and other stuff as well. So they, they, they do a lot of – they have a large uh, amount of public domain material for consumption. I mean, other than the obvious advantage of free – which, let's be honest, that's a huge advantage around here. Yes. Okay, around yes. these parts. Uh, what is it that a, a, attracts you to these sort of old school type of comics? Is it just that variety? That is a, is a big part of it. Be, what I found is that, especially for, like I said, the, the, the genre books that I like, there is such a great breadth and width of them mm -hmm. that there's always something new. And what's also very intriguing to me is that because of the age of some of these books, they, they, they run the gamut from being pre-code to post-code. Oh, right. And so the, yeah, like reading the pre-code war books every November on social media, mm -hmm. I run a campaign called uh, War Comics Month in honor of Veterans Day here in the United States. And I read a lot of public domain war books just because they're readily available and I can point people to, to where they can read them. So when you get some of the pre-code books, they are just grisly, oh, and they are everything that Wortham was talking about in Seduction of the Innocent as far right. as the depiction of human suffering. But then, you, then once you get to the, to the after the code, and then suddenly it's like a, a switch is flipped <laughs> on the content. And it's the same with, it's the, same with the horror books, the pre-code horror books. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's what EC was famous for. They're, they're all in that EC style. And then after that, you get a lot more ghosts. You get a lot more skeletons, a lot less right. gruesome stuff. To me, it's, as, um, it's just a great resource that if you want to learn about, you know, beyond just Marvel and DC, you know, if you want to learn about Charlton and uh, Gold Key and, you know, there's a, Fawcett there's, even. There's, I was going to say, there's a lot of Fawcett 
out there that has yeah. somehow fallen into public domain. So if, right. if, if you want old school Captain Marvel and the Marvel family, it is all out there. Like I mean, Bullet Man and a whole range of characters that they had. You you know, it's DC took kind of a weird stance with Fawcett where, you know, the, and, and now all, I'm not going to get into the, the legal aspect of it because it's, it's quite, I'm sure I'd get it wrong. But yeah, part of that was that because DC basically waited Fawcett out knowing they couldn't afford to fight, a lot of their copyrights just lapsed. Right. When, when the Shazam movie came out, I remember telling that to, to different folks online and say, you know what, I'd love to read some classic Captain Marvel, some classic Shazam stories. I'm like, well, there's, you, you got all of it. <laughs> <laughs> like Wiz Comics number two, like 30 seconds. You can read it right now, free and legal. So you can't beat that. I, I assume Comic Book Plus is the same way, but at the Digital Comics Museum, it seems that if there is any question about the copyright, they don't put it up. That is, uh, yes. I, I know there have been a couple of times where they've had a book up, there's been a question or a claim, they've, they've pulled it down. You know, they try to be as legit as possible. They're not, yes. they're, they're not trying to, to pull a fast one and, and, and live on the edge. If something is no. clearly fully in public domain, it's, it's fair game for them, but that's it. The one that jumps immediately to mind about you saying that is actually in um, one of the ways you can sort on PogBook Plus is by publisher. And under Charlton, it says in giant letters that not every Charlton book is public right. domain, only gotcha. certain ones. Because if you have a Charlton book, it's like you go post on the forum and ask and we'll, we'll yes, right. research whether we can have it. Don't just post it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I appreciate that they try to be legit. Uh, we, we mentioned Tom Panaris when you were on with him for his Cold War series, the uh, anti-communist episode. Wasn't that a public domain book that, that you picked up? Or, and they were yes. very strange, at least uh, listening, to, <laughs> listening to you boys talk about them. Oh, yeah, those, those World War III comics. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Adam Age War and World War III are the, are the two specific ones we talked about. There's also a propaganda book called Is This Tomorrow, which is not, mm -hmm. that, that's more of a serious propaganda book. Oh, man, those Atomic Age War books, it's just, it's bananas. <laughs> just bananas. And that, you know, what's funny is that long ago, you know, before the last Ice Age, Tom was doing a series <laughs> on Pop Culture Affidavit about, I guess, the 75th anniversary of DC Comics. Oh, right. And I guest starred on um, an episode of that series talking about war comics. And we got to talking about war comics in general, and I brought up the public domain books, and I, I told him, I said, yeah, there's this book you got to read called Atom Age War or Atomic Age War. And he's like, okay, I'll go check it out. And then I get like a Facebook message like, are you serious? <laughs> That's the thing. It's like there's, you know, it, it was, I mean, it literally was like the Wild West, you know, the, these publishers, they would just, they, you know, they, they'd come and go and just make some money. And this is the date, the ages of the newsstand where, mm -hmm. you know, sure, if your cover has Washington, D.C. with a mushroom cloud over it and people getting their skin burned off, that's going to get my 12 cents. <laughs> <You know? laughs> amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I was in awe, you know, third party listening to you two talk about it on audio. <laughs> and i was shocked by what my innocent ears were hearing <laughs> yes yes uh we're we're, we're going to be talking about here a uh a, a pi comic how do you feel feel about those for me i love like maze agency and ms tree um what have you read in in, in that genre in particular 
Honestly, not much. Um, I play a lot of Clue. Uh, that that that's probably my best bet. I'm usually Mr. Green. I'm I'm usually Mr. Green, but um, I don't have any version where he's still Reverend Green, like in the original that's version right. of Clue. Right. But um, I like mysteries. I like the idea of mysteries. I tend to fall more on the police procedural or true crime mm, right. side of gotcha. that equation. Gotcha. Um, I've had this discussion with uh, one half of your reigning listeners of the year, uh, <laughs> Darren Sutherland, because I knew that I knew that Darren and Ruth were big into mysteries. Right. And I, ha- um, at the end of last year, I was reading a Lawrence Sanders book and Lawrence Sanders is again, more of a police procedural type of thing. And so I, him and I got to talking about the difference between a police procedural and a mystery. So I, I, when you, when you floated this out to me, I said, Oh, that's great. It's an excuse to read a genre that I'm not, I don't really read that much. Well, let's talk about this one. Sam Hill, Private Eye, number seven. And the cover by Harry Lucy promises us America's hard-boiled wisecracking sleuth and all new stories. And the cover is a recreation of the opening scene from the first issue. And actually looking close, it may just be a copy of that panel. But uh, either way, what we have is a dead blonde lady in her casket and a man named Taylor with a smoking gun saying, no, no, you're dead. You're both dead. I killed you. But our hero is telling Taylor that it's no good. She came back long enough to finger you for murder, and you're going to pay. So what do you think of that dramatic scene on the front of the cover? I love the fact that we are, you know, we have a, this is from 1952. And we've got ostensibly a, a the, the corpse of a pretty blonde woman on the cover of a comic book <laughs> yes, and, and, a, and a, a literal smoking gun, not a figurative smoking gun, not a website called the smoking gun, <laughs> an actual smoking gun. This is probably more an indictment on me than anything else. Um, Taylor's dialogue. You're dead. I killed you. All I can think of is Emil from RoboCop. You know, at the gas station, you're dead. We killed you. We killed you. But uh, that that is uh, that that is a horse of a different color. Like I said, that has nothing to do with the contents of this of this fine uh, Archie MLJ production. <laughs> I mean, at first I wondered. I mean, they're giving away a pretty big spoiler here, but no, it is like we said, the first panel of the first story. So yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I guess not. Um, yeah. We're just going to go through briefly the four stories uh, in this issue. There are no credits available for the scripters, and the art in all of them is by Harry Lucy. And the only reason we know that is because he was smart enough to sign the opening splash page on mm-hmm. all his stories. Now, I've run across a lot of these sort of anthology-type books where the editor is probably the scripter, but in this case, that didn't help us because the editor doesn't get a credit either so Archie also known as MLJ still at mm-hmm. um, at this yeah. point was somewhat known for that that you know the only way you'd get a credit is like you say here with Harry Lucy signing his work <laughs> just because even even up until very recently most Archie books didn't have credits in them even right. even thinking of like modern gals and pals type stuff mm-hmm. so it's not the yeah. way they did it that is a whole little closet fandom, not closet, like niche fandom right. in and of itself, I should say, Trying is tracking identify. down. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And you, and you, you find on these sites, um, you know, that these public domain sites, there's usually 
a pretty active forum scene with them in general, with folks trying to track down information, saying, well, look at this panel and then look right. at this one. This is clearly the same, I mean, same anchor or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We've talked uh, Uncle Scrooge before. And that yes. basically is how Carl Barks became known, is my, my impression is that, it, again, it was sort of sussed out by, by readers. Or certainly yes. readers demanding the good duck artist classically. The, the, right? Exactly. The good duck artist is what, <laughs> before he was known by any other name publicly, I guess that was what <laughs> Carl Barks was, the good duck artist. Quick summary of each of these four stories. We start with the eight pager, the corpse came back. Again, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> we have our hero, Sam Hill, falls asleep at the office only to be awakened by a gorgeous blonde dressed in her nightgown. She tells him that her husband has killed someone, and it's her, and that the police will call it a suicide. After he awakens again, he reluctantly heads to the woman's house, only to find the woman who had appeared to him dead in her bed. But using a piece of paper clutched in the dead woman's hand, Sam proves that the husband killed her. The police want to know how he knew what happened, but he can't explain it. Then we get another eight-pager, the jittery jockey caper. Sam is hired by a former jockey and current horse trainer, Johnny Caro. And as soon as Caro leaves the detective office, he is run down in the street and killed. His investigation leads him to the horse Foggy Night who turns out to be a different horse altogether. A horse of a different color, as a matter of fact. <laughs> the owner, Merrill, was trying to pull a fast one, and Johnny knew it. And at the end, Sam saves the killer's life because he wants to see the man in the electric chair. That's hard-boiled for you. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> then we get a seven-pager, Dead Reckoning. Sam is hired by the police to be bait to capture Jaime Maxim. And it's a very long con involving Sam seemingly gunning down an innocent man, losing his PI license, driving his faithful secretary Roxy away, completely breaking bad, and then eventually catching the crook. And then we close out with the disc of death caper again at seven pages. We start with Sam being woken up by Mona Mason, girl disc jockey, who tells Sam that she couldn't wait until morning. He's going to kill me. So kind of a similar setup to that first story. The next morning, Sam finds the trunk of his car popped and a crumpled Mona Mason inside. And instead of going to the police, because, you know, why bother? He picks up Roxy and they drive around all day with the body in the trunk. Just saying. He and the police got along pretty well. Last story. You'd think they kind of owe him, but he probably could have called him, but he is a hard-boiled private investigator. So driving around, they hear Mona's voice on the radio. But that was pre-recorded because she just left for a month's vacation. But Roxy is able to imitate Mona's voice because girl i don't know um yeah. and the killer who's a jealous ex 
comes to the studio thinking that uh, uh, Mona is in fact alive to finish the job, but Sam shoots the ex in the shoulder and he is arrested. The end. Now, one of the great things about books from this era is uh, 30 pages of content out of 32. It's hard to beat that ratio. No, yeah. <laughs> the thing also about the, you know, these um, anthology type books uh, is that none of the stories are around long enough to wear out their welcome. Right. They introduce the, the, the conflict, they, they, and then they're resolved. And it's only seven or eight pages, and it's a nice short little mystery, and you get a lot of different types of takes in, in the span of, the, of one book, because, you know, yeah. so you get, you get a bunch of different ones. And, I, and th- this, was, this was really enjoyable. I liked having the same artist mm-hmm. on each piece. Yeah. It gave it a very consistent feel. Sam in the first story looks like Sam in the other story. Lieutenant Duggan looks like Lieutenant mm-hmm. Duggan. Roxy looks like Roxy. Right, right. Yeah. One of the things I've fallen in love with recently, because I've been able to find them at, at, at a good price, are those old science fiction and fantasy magazines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got picked up some from the 60s and 70s, but even some from the uh, as late as the 2010s. What I've enjoyed about that is in, you know, 160 pages, you get two novellas and five short stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the variety that, that you can get in a book like this, even one like this that's focused on one character. You're still right. getting a variety of settings, variety of stories, variety of motives, different colorful criminals, uh, that sort of thing. So I thought it was fun. I yeah. think each story is just sort of different enough from the others to keep it interesting. Some similarities, like being woken up by beautiful women seems to be a, yeah. a trend. Now, I specifically keep this recording pure. I have not read issues one through six. I, I probably <laughs> said this earlier in the episode, but this is, <laughs> this is the final, this is the final issue of this, but uh, stay tuned to a comics reading journal because I am going to read the other six. No continuity, obviously, from, from uh, story to story, but uh, uh, you know, from issue to issue, I'm sure, sure. But I do worry about, you know, reading six, six in a row. That would be what's uh, 24 stories. At that right. point, you're going to get some similarities, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> but, One of the uh, things that, that I liked about this was kind of the risque subject matter. Yeah. And and not just on the, okay, you think it's a private investigator story, there's going to be murder. In that first, in The Corpse Came Back, in the first feature, Marjorie's nightgown is very risque yeah. for 1952. I mean, on uh, the second story page, in the first panel, she's doing like Enchantress in Secret Wars, right? She's kind of bending over a little bit. Right. And then the second one, you see this this thing goes all the way down to the small of her back. And it's very lacy and frilly. And it's like, yeah, this, again, this is a little, in 1952 for 10 cents, that's, a, that's not content you'd necessarily expect to find. Yeah. And then in the last story, Mona, the, that, the whole concept of the sultry voiced right. girl on the radio is such a film noir concept to me. True. Right. You know, especially for the era. And, and there's, there's, and, and there's such a, I don't want to say problematic, but maybe troubling <laughs> line when, uh, when Mona or when they're, they're, they're having, you know, they want to get Roxy to impersonate Mona and Roxy says, it's crazy. It won't work. Why not check Mona's love life? Maybe one of her boyfriends was jealous. And Sam says, you mean all of them. She's had more men than the U.S. Army and discharged them just as regularly. It's like, yikes. I mean, I mean, uh, 
you get the feeling maybe Sam Hill was one of those fellows. I'm not saying. I'm just saying <laughs> it seems like, I mean, but uh, she is introduced as, of course, a girl disc jockey who yes. rode one wild horse too many. <laughs> that's her, that's the intro caption. Ay, caramba. Yeah, and, and she also, is, you and know, this is the company that eventually becomes Archie. Come on. Yes, right. I know. <laughs> I mean, we we see Mona much like the first one. She shows up in and and he and he uh, so she shows up in Sam's office where he's sleeping. She he calls her Angel Cake the entire time. <laughs> There's a, in the in the narration panel we see the girl in the giant martini glass. Right. With the uh, with the music, no musical notes, and the first thing she's doing is grabbing his leg. I, it, I said it goes both ways. I mean, I, you know, obviously she must she had a lot of boyfriends, but I think you know you talked about this when you did the uh, the issue of Archie, that who has the power dynamic in that relationship. Right. I think Mona owns the yes. power dynamic yeah. in all these relationships, <laughs> <laughs> even even when she's dead, she, she oh. is still in charge. <laughs> but you know what's what's great about that is that. The art, when she is, um, after she's dead and she's found in Sam's car, the art is so good. Like, there's it a panel where where she's been obviously jammed into the trunk and her head yeah. is pushed up against the spare against the tire. Yeah. yeah, and then there's one uh, about a page later where Sam is where carrying her. her. Yeah, and it looks that, I mean, that looks like something out of a universal horror movie. The art is very nice in this. It's not flashy. It's very, what I would call, sturdy. I did want to ask you, speaking of the art, is it me or do you think Roxy might be like Lucille Ball? Oh, She's yeah. got kind yeah. of a Lucy look yeah. going on. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah and, and she is not taking any lip, which, again, is a classic noir situation. It's her running gag in in the uh, the jittery jockey where she's trying to do her nails the entire time, and she keeps getting annoyed because she keeps getting interrupted, and then she has to. But then that leads to the solution with the the nail polish remover, taking yep. the the paint off of our poor equestrian friend. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I mean, but we had we had the murder, we had the we had the the gambling, we had the infiltration of the mob. A lot going on in these stories. And what I liked also, there's a lot of lingo. The, the, mm-hmm. the script sounds very um, authentic. In, the, in the, the Jittery Jockey, there's a, lot, there's a whole lot of racing lingo, like horse racing right. lingo that gets thrown around. And in Dead Reckoning, uh, when um, Sam goes to work for uh, Jaime is the name of the, mm-hmm. the mob boss that he's working for the, the way that they're discussing the protection racket. And he says, Oh, I got their punch boards. It's like, I, I had to look that one up that, you know, punch boards were used as an illegal form of gambling, similar to like a numbers game. And it's like, okay, that it really does give it that authentic kind of film noirish private eye feel to have the lingo. It's not just uh, the King's English. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and or as I said, when he when he refers to Mona as angel cake and it so it's <laughs> it is I mean, it, it's 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 of a, it's of its time, but it, it lends it a air of authenticity, which I appreciated. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking through Dead Reckoning and that's the one where where Roxy's in it a lot and he's having to betray her and not let her in on the secret and all that. And oh, she's Lucille Ball. That's no, yeah. I mean, there are a couple just dead on shots. It's the nature of the beast, but obviously stuffing an entire mystery into seven or eight pages means that these pages and panels have tons of words in them. 
Mm-hmm. But I think that's a Silver Age thing as well as a mystery sort of you, you need to have your detective patter going. Yeah. You can look at these panels and some of the panels are half full, 30, 40, 50% full of narration box and mm. or, and or a word balloon. I'm glad that you mentioned a Silver Age type of trope because here, this particular issue was, I said, 1952. So we're not in the Silver Age yet. Yeah. We're a few years away from Showcase and, and the new uh, and Barry Allen Flash and all that. But you can already see here that we're beginning to move away artistically from when I think of like the golden age, you know, the 1940s. Right. I think of every panel having a caption mm-hmm. and then maybe, right. maybe dialogue, but it was very much like a comic strip where each panel had a caption explaining either the action or with narration, and then they might have some dialogue. Here, we do get some panels that have a caption, and then we have dialogue, but we also get a lot of panels with just dialogue. Right. And we get even a handful with very little dialogue, and then we have some panels, not even panels, it's more gutters. It's gutter space that has narration in it. So we can see even here in a genre book, we're moving into what we would come visually to understand more like the Silver Age. I, I wonder if part of that's an adaptation from, you know, the short story and prose of mm-hmm. you know, mystery, you know, pulp mystery, you know, detective novels, where you're, you're bouncing back and forth between the narrator, some, you know, usually first person like this is, and then the the action and the conversation. So it's sort of, it's it's built for that sort of rhythm, uh, perhaps, mm-hmm. as opposed yep. to when you're doing superheroes in 1938, you're sort of making it up. You're not <laughs> making up the story, you're making up the entire, the entire genre. You, you know? haven't, you haven't codified any tropes yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what do you think of Sam Hill's look? He's got the uh, red bow tie and a pretty distinctive streak of white in that dark hair. The bow tie look is not what I would think of a private investigator. I normally would think of like when we see him a bit more disheveled with, right. without his tie. Uh, but he also wears a, you know, the blue fedora, the blue uh, okay. overcoat. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely a good fifties look. I'm, I'm, right. The bow tie is a bit interesting. Cause I would think uh, by 52, the bow tie was still, cause I tend to think of the bow tie more as being a younger man's uh, uh, accessory. But, you know, I guess if he's a private eye, he's not necessarily a button-up type of guy, right? He's going right. to be a little bit different in his look. Right. I like the white streak. I like it's the white very, streak, too. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it's consistent. It, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's there every time we see him. So it, it, you have to wonder, is, like, is there some origin to that? Right. Or is right. he just prematurely gray? Or, mm-hmm. But it, it, did, it added him some character. But if, if he would just had, you know, normal hair, he'd look a little generic. This gives him right. a certain type of visual uh representation that and the uh and the bow tie because he is does appear to be the only fella who ever wears a bow tie in the book as well yeah you you have a couple of of spots where where you can clearly distinguish him you know through the through the design elements that's just a smart creative choice the other character look i like is lieutenant duggan Mm -hmm. the the hard-boiled police detective who is as you would expect wearing kind of a rumpled gray suit and he always has a, a cigar. I think every yes. time we see him, yep. he's got a cigar going. Cigar. Yep. He looks kind of like Jack Kirby, but that's only because <laughs> I, that's what Jack, you know, Jack Kirby was kind of a, a rumpled older guy with a, with yep. a cigar. And I love yep. so that's. 
And they said we have the the poor put upon secretary again. I think that's sort of a, a standard trope, um, but that doesn't make it a, a bad thing. I mean, you always need if you're a you know, quote unquote solitary lone character from a narrative perspective, right? You need to have someone to right chat with, someone to push back against you. So you need Tonto, right? I mean, that exactly. was uh, yeah. someone for the Lone Ranger to talk to. Mm-hmm. I guess they, they, were, they weren't giving any real thought to this might be the first issue of Sam Hill you picked up because in the first story, right. Roxy is absent. Right. And he tells us that Roxy had been away for a week and I was missing her. It's like, who's Roxy? <laughs> yeah, I guess, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point. He's not, you know, my girl, Roxy. Even say my girl, that wouldn't help in the 50s. You know, right. that could mean anything. <laughs> my professional administrative assistant, assistant. Roxy. <laughs> <laughs> Who I have no trouble with in the HR department, just so you know. Okay, you just you gotta yeah. clarify that these days. They do kind of make it clear when he says you can't type yeah, that you get to think, right. okay, she must be his secretary. Yeah. Yeah. There is a good line here where he's typing and he goes to type please and apparently spells it wrong because in the dialogue <laughs> he has said, if you will please P L E E S. This series ran seven issues. But Sam Hill P.I. did appear again 60 years later in Archie and Friends 150, in which hordes of legendary MLJ and Archie characters arrive in Riverdale through an interdimensional portal opened by a fallen meteorite because comic books. And among that group of characters, because you can see him with his bow tie and his white streak in his hair, is... Sam Hill P.I. That appearance did not renew the copyright, evidently, because there's also a series of Kindle-only detective novels featuring the character. The author, R. Archer, admits that liberties have been taken with the original comic book character and that uh, uh, these new stories are even more hard-boiled than the original comic book. So there you go. A little uh, uh, Sam Hill trivia for you. First off, that's good to know because always looking for, for new, uh, new exciting fiction to read. <laughs> but you know, what's funny is that, that I, I love to see stuff like that because I'm not what you'd call a creative. Okay, yes, I, I do have a podcast. Uh, yes, I, I did run blogs for many years. You know, I, I dabble in, in, in modeling, model painting, not modeling, modeling. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, I was going to say. breaking news here. <laughs> <laughs> the, the figure model in my family is my brother, Jason. Yes, yes. You want to go see his stuff on Facebook because it yes. is insane. But, but, I, but I do dabble in it. But I've always said in the back of my mind, like, you know, there's all these public domain characters. Yeah. And the great thing about the public domain is, is that as long as you're not using any version of them that has some copyrighted design. Right. The example is, yes, you can write your version of Frankenstein, but you can't have him look like the Jack Pierce Frankenstein from the Universal Monsters. So it's like, wow, you know, it's like I'd always love to do that. Just write some prose based on one of these old superhero or pulp characters. So to see somebody doing that with a a very much forgotten uh, MLJ character, that that makes me very happy. (laughs) Beautiful. The uh, the coloring is is really something here too. I don't know if if Lucy did the coloring, but like on the second story, there's a lot of really interesting work with shadow and light. The coloring in general was good. I also really like the the uh, not so much the facial expressions because the characters aren't super expressive, but the face just the faces in general. 
It's Jaime Max, Maxim, I think, is the name of the mob boss in the second one. He, he looks like something like Chester Gould would do for Dick Tracy. He's not quite a grotesque, but he's certainly got a very well-developed face, you know, and so it's a very distinctive look. So the, as I said, the, the art was, I mean, the stories are, are nice and I, and I like them and then they did have some twists and turns in them, but the art was what really, I really enjoyed. I think the most of this book is that, like I said, that, that really sturdy 50s style art, which suits these stories very well. I think, I think sturdy is a great way to describe it. Well, Luke, you know what's next. <laughs> the verdict on Sam Hill, private eye number seven. Well, since this is readily available for free, the only issue is, is it worth the time to read? I mean, to be fair, there are four stories, and there are a lot of words in there. It might take you 35 minutes to read it. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not like a modern comic, which, you know, three and a half minutes, you're done. So there is yep. a minor time investment. So to me, this is a clear-cut public domain deal. I agree with that. Again, when all it, all it takes is just some time to sit down and read it. It's a good read. If you have any interest in, in private eyes or that type of, you know, Sam Spade style fiction, I think you'll enjoy it. It's, it's worth it. And the beautiful thing about a public domain book, if you didn't like it, eh, I didn't like it. It didn't cost you anything. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's not even taking up space in a box. <laughs> we call that a win-win. Yeah, it's perfect. Ah, <laughs> uh, Sir Luke. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And as I said, it, it's always an absolute pleasure to be on the Relatively Geeky uh, Podcast Network. Uh, you and I have been recording together for, for many years now on and off, and uh, I always enjoyable. But that I always loved about the, the quarter bin is that you really never know what you're going to get. There you go. And, uh, and this, this, and certainly with the last couple of episodes where you've been breaking the rules, even then, you know, now the, now the rules are gone. I mean, down is up, up is down, you know. I'm a rebel, uh, man. I'm a rebel. <laughs> He's on the edge, <laughs> but then, but then, even just to, to to do some some public domain comics, which is just such a an odd little niche it that really I have uh, I have in, I have found myself enjoying for many years now. I mean, uh, the I remember the first tablet that I owned actually had an HP touchpad. If everybody remembers those, those are the ones that it was supposed to be HP's answer to the iPad. And then they, a week before they released it, they said, yeah, we're going to fail. So they slashed the prices like in half on them. <laughs> and uh, I actually uh, loaded a, an Android kernel on it, had it running Android until the thing finally gave up right. the ghost. But the first thing I did with that book, because it was a tablet, a full-size tablet, was go to Comic Book Plus and try reading a comic book on it to see how it looked. Right. To see how a comic book would look on this screen. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, this looks pretty good. I think I could do this. Well, that, that is the one reason that I still have my nook is reading public domain comics on. I mean, you, you can't get apps on it. You can't get books for it. You can't get anything for it anymore. But I can still load it up. Well, I'll hold it up to the microphone. I've got my little, <laughs> my little Kindle Fire 7 here. And that, that's primarily, that's just my reading device for the most part. You know, that's 30, $33 at Thanksgiving well spent. Absolutely. <laughs> now, our listeners must already know this, but where can we find you online and find your excellent podcasting efforts? Well, if you would uh, like to hear more of, uh, of me on your uh, favorite podcast listening application or device you can head over to two truefreaks.com i'm i've got several shows on that network my main show is earth destruction directive 
which is a Daikaiju podcast. Daikaiju is Japanese giant monsters, such as Godzilla, Gamera, Rodan, King Ghidorah. And uh, we cover all aspects of Japanese giant monsters and Japanese giant monster culture. The professor has been a guest several times on her construction Man. directive. Ultra Yes. <laughs> yes, the legendary Kyodai hero, Ultraman, who's getting a, a huge uh, bit of exposure here yes. in the United States. Yes between Mill Creek releasing all of the classic and modern series on Blu-ray and uh, Marvel Comics announcing a new Ultraman ongoing series and Subaraya Pro putting the first episode of the new Ultraman series, Ultraman Z or Z, for free on their YouTube channel with English subtitles. So uh, great, great time to be an Ultraman fan. 1970 was also a great time to be an Ultraman fan. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, I, I have to take your word for that because uh, <laughs> I wasn't even a guy. You know, they, they say you weren't a glimmer. I wasn't even a concept in 1970. <laughs> Besides our destruction directive, I'm also one of the co-hosts on The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror. I host that show along with my brother, Jason. Uh, the hair metal hero, Chris Tyler, and two true freaks, OG, Chris Honeywell. And uh, my other show is Get Back to the Wrestling. Finally, there is a podcast on the internet about professional wrestling. Finally. <laughs> and uh, that is uh, also co-hosted by my brother, Jason, and the hair metal hero, Chris Tyler, taking a look not so much at the modern pro wrestling scene, but just uh, we, we'd get together and talk about some, uh, talk about some wrestling every now and again. So if any of those sound interesting, please head over to twotruefreaks.com and give them a listen. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you, Luke. Like we said, always good to talk to you. Anytime I can be on the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, I'm, I'm, I'm taking it. I, I said this on the Comics Reading Journal not too long ago. I was here since day one-ish. I was on a promo. <laughs> <laughs> I remember back in the day when you would send feedback before an episode was released. Let's just leave it there. There's a good story behind that, but that, <laughs> that is a true fact. True fact. <laughs> well, that wraps up my coverage of Sam Hill, Private Eye number seven, bringing episode 155 to a close. Next time, we're going to wrap up this little mini-series and break our last rule. I'm going to cover an actual, honest-to-gosh, 50-cent purchase now. Stop clutching your pearls because we have three complete reprint issues inside this issue and some original content. So it comes in for less than 17 cents each if you do the math, okay? Mm -hmm. so we're going to be looking at Teen Titans 100 page giant number one from DC Comics from just 2018. You know, them Walmart books. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode, public domain comics, breaking my rules, secrets of the Giaconetti, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. 
And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.